Our scripture reading for today is taken from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Turn with me then, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 17, which I'm going to read and then uh, preach from. Now read. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also would appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of this, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so, also, so you also must forgive. And above all things, Put on love, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel this morning, and we thank you for allowing us opportunity to sing the gospel, to proclaim the gospel in words of our confession to hear of the gospel, and even to have this opportunity to indeed listen and feed from the gospel. We want to thank you that you have made us to be one in Christ. We are grateful that you have drawn us from different places and backgrounds, and in the Lord Jesus Christ you have made us one. We thank you this morning because of the faith in Christ Jesus that is being proclaimed here at CPC Houston and of the Lord, of the love that you have called them to have for all the saints, 
because of the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. We pray that this morning, as we hear the truth of that gospel, that we may learn and understand the grace of God in truth and consequently bear fruit that befits repentance. Please come, our Heavenly Father, and be my helper as I open this passage this morning so that your people are helped to know you more, to love you more, to serve you more, and to trust you more. Amen. It's my great pleasure to be among you today. I want to start by bringing greetings from my own family and from my church family back at Grace Point Church, Kikuyu, who have already gathered by now and have already gone home. Um, but they did send their love um, to this church family. And it's a great encouragement for us to know that you pray for us. And I also want to confirm to you that we do pray for you. We are indeed aware of the challenges and the difficulties that there have been in the recent past. And you are and have been in our thoughts and in our prayers as we keep journeying together. Uh, as we um, seek to partner and to love the Lord and to witness to his name. I have been sufficiently well introduced, and perhaps I should just get into the text. But dare I say that if you would love to hear more, there will be an opportunity to share more about the ministry and about the work uh, after this, and there is a lunch available to all of us, and it will be a great opportunity for you perhaps even to ask a question about more of what we are doing. You're very welcome to that short um, presentation that will be happening straight after the end of this service. But by way of introduction, I'll tell you something little about my aunt. She's called Beatrice and is into her late 60s. Um, remained faithful, you know, her singlehood for all the years, and recently she got married. She's a believer that I have come to know and respect um, because we lived close by to her since I was very young. But one of the things that my aunt loves to do, uh, perhaps like all aunties do, is to tell us stories from when we were very little, especially embarrassing things that we used to do. Um, whether it is to just annoy us or to just remind us of things that we were doing, whatever the reason, Auntie B loves to remind us of the things that we were doing when we were young. And one of the things that she reminds me often about is that my name, which is called Mungai, means one who belongs to God, literally red. Among my people, there wasn't really a strong knowledge of God but among the neighboring Maasai people, there was the worship of God who was called Nkai. And so, when my parents then had me, uh, they named me after God, uh, a name that then had been adopted among my people group, meaning one who is somewhat dedicated to God. In retelling this story, oftentimes my aunt would be either alluding to something about my growing up and perhaps wanting to be a pastor. And I think that's something that she herself really wanted to happen because she had grown up in church and wanted 
uh, someone from within our family to be involved in ministry. But I think even more reason for reminding me about my name is whenever she wanted to call me out of any mischief that I would have been involved in. This would especially be clear because of the tone of voice that she would use any time she wanted to call out my lying or to call out my mischief or any demeanor that she didn't like in me. And she would shout my name, Mungai. Now, you wouldn't understand what that means, but in my, among my people, when that tone is used, there's warning in it, there is telling you stop whatever you are doing, there is also a reminder you are not acting according to your name or even according to your age. There is all that loaded just within that particular uh, tone of speech. What my auntie wanted to see is that I would live up to the expectations of the name that I was carrying. I thought about that little story when I was thinking through this passage that we are looking at today. Because it has in it the idea of an identity and what then is expected as a result of that identity. It is not just a name, a believer that you have, but there are implications. There is an expected level of conduct. There is an expected way of behavior that comes from this particular identity. In this passage, what we see is Paul writing a very passionate letter to a church that he loved. It is not a church that he had visited in person, but it was very dear to him. He loved this community of believers that were in Colossae. Indeed, he confesses that kind of connection that he had to them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This church among the Colossians had been planted by a brother whom we are told was named Epaphras in chapter 1, verse 7. And out of that witness of that brother, whom we don't know very much about, but certainly a church planter nonetheless, who had also planted another church in Laodicea, a, a community had actually emerged. God had used this little known brother uh, for strong witness of the gospel among his own people. However, uh, many false teachers had then emerged out of them and had confused people and were trying to draw them away from Christ. Paul then writes this letter to show them that Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you, Colossians, need to be rooted and to be built up uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone is preeminent, or rather he is sufficient for you. You do not need to turn to any secret knowledge. You do not need to turn to any worldly ideas or even to any legalistic rituals. Do this, do the others, do not the other, but actually just stick to Christ who is in you and he is the hope of glory. Paul aims, uh, Paul's aim, it seems then, from the content of the letter, is particularly to call out these believers away from false teaching by reminding them of the supremacy of Christ their Savior, their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, and how then they ought to live as the community of those who have been saved. And how does Paul go about this? Now, he does it, particularly in the verses that we have read in three particular ways. And we are going to see uh, 
three ways in which um, Paul calls them away from false teaching and actually to know their identity and then to know their new character in the Lord Jesus Christ and also to understand the new community that they have been called into. So if you forget everything else that I've said today, remember identity, character, and community. Identity in terms of who they were or who they are supposed to be. Character, how they ought then to behave or indeed uh, to act as those who have that identity. And community in the sense that how then do we live one with another. Let's come to the first one, your new identity. That is now Paul writing to the Colossians. Right from the beginning of the book, Paul is very clear to address, or he's very concerned to address the question of identity. In fact, right in verse 1, the very opening verse here, Paul reminds the Colossae and he addresses them as saints, those who are faithful brothers in Christ. And it always shocks me how when writing a letter, you know, like this one to the Colossians, Paul would address believers as saints, as those who have been sanctified, as those uh, to whom the righteousness of Jesus Christ had been applied. And I think it's a fitting description of a believer that they are saints in the sense that Christ has actually died for them. But it's also true that they are sinners, just like we were welcomed, all of us here, sinners who need a savior. But they are also sufferers in the sense that they are so Jonas. They are on a journey and indeed they are faced with all sorts of problems. No wonder even among the Corinthians, a very divided church and a very troubled church, still in the opening chapter, Paul will call them saints. What a glorious thing uh, to know of the security of believers, that even in our brokenness, even in our wandering into sin and perhaps into the world, into the world, the Lord still sees us as his people and addresses them and us together as saints. What Paul wanted them to know is that they are actually accepted before God he knows them for who they are and actually loves them. He wants them to know who they are there for in Christ, who they were before they came to Christ, and then who they have now become. Listen to what he says once again in verse 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, reminding them of their new status, raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, Paul here is using you know, very clear words to sort of give us some pointers to the identity of the Colossian believers. He describes them in verse 1 of um, chapter 3 as those who have been raised with Christ. In other words, Paul is taking them back to Calvary to actually realize that you who are believers were raised together with the Lord Jesus Christ on that resurrection morning. 
And in verse 3, he describes them as those who have been dead to the world. That's quite an interesting description of people who are breathing. Dead to the world. You know, he's, he wants them to know that you are not of this world. You've been raised with Christ mysteriously. You died with him. And that means that you are strangers in the world in which you live. But he also wants them to know that they are safe and secure in Christ because they have been hidden with Christ in God. What? What an incisive description of these believers. Here is a deep dive into the DNA of the believer. He describes them not by their outward appearances, not by their skin tone or color, not by the kind of passport that they might carry, or the kind of food that they might eat or not eat, but for who they really are, those who have been raised with Christ, those who have died to the world, essentially like perhaps boring words from one of the other epistles, those who have crucified their bodies, as it were, hung them up in order to, and actually put them to death in order to be alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that they are those who are dead to the world, meaning that they are in the world, perhaps borrowing those words from the Gospels, but they are not of it. He needs them to remember that they are safe in Jesus. They can be themselves because they are secure in Christ. Whatever happens, they are safe in the hands of the Savior. No amount of turmoil or difficulties or challenges would shake them away from their secure position that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if that is how you and I see ourselves. Or I wonder whether perhaps we might identify more with external markers. I wonder whether we identify and take pride more in externalities. Or even perhaps in tribes, theological tribes, perhaps natural tribes. Now, If you come from Kenya, tribes are a big thing. Our political mobilization is often based on tribes. I don't think that's also too different from here because there are also sort of ideological tribes, perhaps even, you know, theological tribes in, in this country. And unfortunately, most people seem to take their pride in that. In the songs they sing, in the liturgies that they might follow, or even just in the order of services. Dear saints, Paul describes Colossian believers as those who've been raised with Christ, dead to the world, and secure in the Lord. And I think we ought to take our cue from that, to know that the other external descriptions are neither here nor there, but that our purest, Definition is who, are, who we are in Christ, how safe we are in him, and how dead we are 
to the world. Please remember, you are God's chosen ones. He goes on to describe them in verse 12. God has called you to himself. This is your identity. But following on from that, it is not just an identity without a consequence. There's actually an identity that then shapes and informs a certain type of behavior or a character. Because this is who you are, then this is how you ought to live. Now we find it very difficult, particularly to read long lists of things that we should do. The imperatives come and you know, we feel uneasy. You know, is it all becoming more aristic or over again? Are we all going back to Exodus and to Leviticus? But actually, gospel people who have been transformed by the gospel surely must display a type of character that is actually consistent with the gospel that they have actually heard. There cannot be right believing without right behavior. In other words then, verses 5 to 14, which is my second point, shows us the new character of the believer, which really is what sometimes people call the three B's of discipleship, which is behavior becoming of a believer. Surely there is a standard of living that must define or that must actually point that this person surely has heard the gospel, has come to faith, and is actually bearing fruit that befits that kind of repentance. How then do we see that in the verses uh, 5 through 14? Well, I think we see this one way in a heavenly outlook. Verse 5 um, says to us, um, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. But also cross-referring to verses 1 and 2 tells us that you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. And verse 2, set your mind on the things above. I wonder how we hear those words. The believer has an outlook of life that's actually heaven-focused. They know that they are not yet home. They don't live as those who have arrived. But perhaps they live out of a suitcase like I am doing right now for the next three weeks. Knowing that I'm only here for a season. The gentleman at the uh, immigration office asked me, um, how long are you here for? And I said, I'll be here only for three weeks and what are you going to do? He was quite keen to know whether I'm here to do a bit of work or whether I'm here for any professional engagements. And I said, I'm, I'm here to preach the gospel um, and then I'll be on my way pretty quickly. I needed to assure him that I've only been invited for three weeks and I'm very happy with that period. I'll soon be gone. And he waved me on. It was a very good and quick immigration process and I'm grateful that it was not nerve-wracking as I would, had imagined it would be. And I wonder whether we need to be living our lives as sojourners, as travelers. I wonder whether we need to listen to those words of Peter 
that we are aliens and pilgrims. I wonder whether that needs to capture our imagination once again. I know when we think of aliens and pilgrims, we think of those, you know, cartoon images of, you know, funny-looking sort of human beings maybe with things protruding out of their heads. Strange as it were. But I actually think maybe that is how the world sees believers. These strange people who go on and on about a book that was written 2,000 years ago. And they won't stop the mockery, whether it's on social media uh, or even in the mainstream media. The mocking continues of the faith that once and for all was delivered to us. Because you know what? We are aliens and strangers. We gather here and we sing songs every Sunday morning, and we are happy to do it. We give all our resources for the advance of the gospel. We connect with people from different places because we are one big family, all calling upon the name of the Lord, strangers and aliens. But I wonder whether you are happy to wear that or maybe you feel like you identify more with the world. I wonder if you feel more perhaps connected with the world around you or you feel much more at home with your Christian family and your Christian identity. The question is, what is your outlook? Is this all you want to live for? Big house? Perhaps a lot of money and assets accumulated. Things here and there. And it's no different in my own country. I'm not saying this to guilt trip any of you. But it's the same thing that people all over the world seem to be pursuing after. Believers, we are called to have a heavenly outlook. And that will shape then how we view things, how we hold on to wealth, how we view opportunity, because we are, not, we are not home yet. We are only here for a season. I love it, not him, when it says that here for a season, and then soon we'll be gone. We're only here, but for a moment. But our character, not only will it be about a heavenly outlook, but there will be a very real putting off of the old self and putting on of the new self. You know, this really is perhaps um, akin to um, a factory or a construction worker who comes home to his waiting family. And, and what, would this, um, what would this look like? Now, when he comes home, he will need to take off his work clothes, maybe the heavy boots and the overalls he was wearing, and, and join in the family time in the evening, maybe to bond with the children, to be the dad and help around the house, or to, to be the husband that um, he is called to be. That's what it looks like, putting off, you know, putting away that which is of old and sinful nature. No wonder then Paul would go on to say, put to death, therefore, that which is after in you. And he lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which Paul 
goes on to say it idolatry. Indeed, he gives a warning that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. These are the things that you used to do before you became a believer. That's what you were when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. His list continues, and it's not exhaustive, but he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Don't we all need to listen to these words again? At a time when people are very casual about relationships. At a time when perhaps our eyes have been wandering into all sorts of things. And it was good for us to hear that prayer of repentance uh, that is captured in our service sheet for today. At a time in an age when covetousness seems to have uh, taken many of the young people to desire that which is not ours, to want to have everything to ourselves. What a reminder then this morning that on account of these things, God's wrath is coming. To know that anger ought not to define us. That extreme anger, sometimes known as wrath, malicious intent, whether in words, in terms of slander, or even by action, ought not to be among you. There ought not to be any obscene talk. When I listen to this and I hear how we have normalized some words in our conversations, and you wonder, that's unwholesome. That's not typical of a believer who really has the Lord's name on his heart. Or even lying, which many people would think is a small matter. Indeed, it belongs to the former self. It is not of the believer. These are the things that then you must put off. Clearly, a new person is here. No longer given to the appetites of this world. The desire for pleasure, power and money and influence. All this must be put away for the believer to walk straight and indeed to walk without the weights and sin that so easily entangles. The believer must now be careful about the words they use, whether about another believer or about an elder of a local church or even about themselves or of the Lord that they serve. They mustn't be given to any loose talk or even a warped motivation of the world around them. They must put off all that. But putting off, brothers and sisters, is not sufficient anymore than the father in my illustration who gets home and changes his work clothes. Surely he must put on something else. Indeed, it would be very disturbing if the dad who has come home from work takes off his tie and his boots and everything and then decides he's, he wants to join his children in play. Surely he must put on something else. No wonder then Paul will say that you must put on the new self. He says in verses 10, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator where there is now no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Cadians, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, he says. 
kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, binds everything together in perfect harmony. Wouldn't there be true gospel witness if Christians lived like this? Wouldn't many people know that we are truly followers of Jesus because of how we have loved one another and have put on the new self? I wonder whether we would be more known for these values and qualities if truly the gospel has touched us at the very inner um, beings. If we are those who are compassionate to one another, we are those who are kind to one another. You only need sometimes to go up on social media and look up any contentious topic and you will wonder whether these really are believers. The keyboard warriors, whenever a contentious theological issue is posted somewhere, they're very quick and eager to affirm their position and there is usually nothing of gospel love expressed there. The humility is often lacking, and in this place you find pride and you know, self-elevation. There is no patience. There is no bearing with one another. Those amazing words used more than 200 times in the New Testament, one anothering, being there for one another, forgiving one another, bearing with one another. These things are just not you know, there among Christians as they ought to be. What a rebuke for me and for the people I serve, but perhaps for also for us this morning, that we can be those who are bearing with one another. That means that we are saints, like I said at the beginning, but also broken sinners in need of a savior, but also sufferers who are aliens in this hostile world. What we really need for one another is to bear with one another, to forgive one another. We all have our flaws. None of us comes perfect. None of us stands on our own righteousness. We are here because we are a bunch of sinners in need of a savior. What more could we ask of each other than forbearance, forgiveness? Because it is not just me on the receiving end of the forgiveness. It's actually you and me today and tomorrow. We both need it. Paul says we are to put on love, which will then bind everything together in perfect harmony. For this indeed will show our true character and our true behavior as those who have been saved. Dear saint, let me close this second of, third, of three points by asking you, where is your gaze? And if your gaze is in Christ, then how does that show in your character? How does that show in your speech or even in the attitudes of your own heart and in mine as well? Sometimes back, Christians used to be mocked that they were too excuse me, they were too heavenly-minded for any other use. But sadly, the reverse is now true. 
that Christians might actually be described as those who are too earthly-minded for any heavenly or for any master's use. Is that you? If your mind is truly is in, is in Christ, how is that reflected in your priorities? How is that reflected in your commitment and in your love uh, for the Lord and the community to which he has called you? I pray that the Lord would help us to know what we need to put off and what we need to put on so that we may grow more and more in Christ-likeness. But Paul gives us the third and the last um, a point here, which is your new community. I said it is new identity, new character, and finally the new community, which we are going to find in verses 15, and seven, 15, 16, and 17. Here, Paul finally reminds Colossian believers of the kind of community that they ought to be. You see, Paul understands all too well that our faith is not a private commitment. It's not so much a private commitment, but actually a communal calling. He has written to them this book as a community, and he addresses them as you, you, puro. If it was in Swahili, it is different. In English, you, singular, and you, puro, is difficult to know which is which. In Swahili, it would have been wewe, and it would have been nini when you are together. English doesn't quite distinguish, but much of the usage of the language here, and in all the other um, letters that are addressed to churches, it is written to you together as a community, which sadly is a value that we are losing over and over again and becoming highly individualistic and thinking that, you know, Jesus is my personal savior. Yeah, it's an interesting idea there, Jesus being a personal savior. I'm not saying it is not entirely helpful. But actually, much of what we find scripture describing God's people is you, the called out ones. You are the church. You are the community of God's people on a mission to hold out the gospel to the watching world. So Paul has written to them as a faith community. And in fact, he wants this letter to be read among you together, but also it ought to be read to another faith community among the Laodiceans, he says in chapter 4, verse 16. This community of the saved must not only individually live out the gospel, but must also collectively bear gospel fruit. And how do we see this working out, this sense of community? Well, we see that this is a community, verse 15, that is gathered by the gospel. Let's read together, verse, uh, or let me read, read it for you, verse 15 through 17, where it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. This is, this is the one body that we have been gathered together as one. You know, he says, let that peace of Christ, I mean, that message that has brought about reconciliation and peace among you, that peace of Christ, let it dwell among you. Let it rule in your hearts. 
Indeed, this is to what you have been called in one body. It's a community of gratitude, a community of the saved, a community where the peace of Christ rules. But it is not just that. It is not just gathered by the gospel, but it is also indwelt by the gospel. Look at what he says on uh, in the following verse. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, this is the word of God dwelling in you communally, as a community, richly. The word of Christ is the gospel. And what are you doing with it? You are teaching and admonishing, that's correcting, one another in all wisdom. And then you are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. This is a community around the gospel. It has been formed by the gospel, by what Christ has done. It is indwelt by the gospel. And what people are doing, they are gospeling. Not gossiping, but gospeling. I think there's a clear distinction between those two. And what you'd imagine of any church that when people finish the service, when they're having tea out there, they are gospeling. They are sharing the wonderful news of uh, their redemption one to another, encouraging each other. They are teaching one another and correcting one another in all wisdom. And they're also singing like we've just sung Psalm 8 here and hymns, and spiritual songs, and what marks this community is a gratitude to God. But that's not all. They are also living for the gospel, because whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to our Father through him. It is a community that is gathered by the gospel, that is indwelt by the gospel, and it is living for the gospel. Everything is done in the name of the Lord. And what seems to mark it, you know, through and through in all these areas is with thanksgiving. The peace of Christ rule in your heart and be thankful. You know, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God you'll be surprised how much um, difficulties and tensions disappear from among a community of believers when we replace our complaints with thanksgiving. You'll be surprised how much of harmony is restored within a marriage when people replace complaints with compliments. When we are thankful for others, the wise brother who once told me that at the heart of all sin is ingratitude. When we don't appreciate who we are, even what we are, when we don't appreciate our identity in Christ or what God has given to us, when we don't value it and cherish and treasure the community that God has given us, ingratitude sets into our hearts, we begin tearing away. God's people are called to be a new community, a community of thanksgiving. Praising the Lord for who he has made them to be. Isn't it amazing that we can be such a gospel community, that we are connected to each other by the gospel? The only reason I'm here today 
is because of the gospel. There would be no reason I would be in Houston today. There are all people I never knew just, just a short seven, eight years ago. But the gospel brings us together. You support a brother that you had not met. All these stories I'm talking about my childhood, they'll be totally alien to you. Yet you generously support our work for one reason, not because you know us, but because we share anything else except the gospel. If you take any interest in any of the world mission that I'm sure the church is involved in in many ways, it is because of the gospel. Maybe be grateful for the gospel. But Paul is reminding us that we have a corporate identity. We want to be grateful to the Lord for it. We've been gathered by the gospel. Let us leave it out. Let us care for one another, love one another, support one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. Everything we do, it is not in pursuing a selfish agenda or self-gratification, but actually to seek that glory and honor be to the name of Christ. Dear friends here at CPC Houston, are you that gospel-centered community that is described here? And you as a person who's been listening to me these last few minutes, are you this person who has been transformed, who is marked by a putting off of the old self and putting on of the new self? Is your identity primarily in Christ and in what he has done for you? Or are you defined by other markers that the world has given out there? Friends, be who God has called you to be. May your identity in Christ form your character and shape the community that God has called you to be. Let us pray. Paul prays his prayer for the church in Colossae in chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we ask that this would be true of CPC Houston, of Grace Point Church in Kikuyu, of many others who call upon your name in this city, in this country, and all over the world. Lord, may we be marked by a true identity in the Lord, by a faithful character of loving and serving the Lord, and of a true hope in Him as a new community of those who have been saved. For we ask all these things in your name. Amen.